and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined in the remote recording studio today by my co-host, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hi, Eric. So something looks different about your background. Are you <laughs> are you no longer living la vie française? Away. You noticed, yes, I'm back in the United States, you know, I don't want to say sadly, but that's kind of how I'm feeling. But I had such a wonderful time away, and I was just leaving France, actually, as everything was ramping up. Oh, with the strikes. Well, protests against the police killing of a teenager. And Mm -hmm. so I've been following that in the news. And yeah, it's not a perfect place, but there's a lot of good things to be said there. And even just for the way people are mobilizing now, which we've discussed is a French tradition. So anyhow, back in the old USFA. (laughs) Well, even if you may not be so happy to be back, we are happy to have you back. Thank you. So this week, we have my conversation with Juana Maria Rodriguez about her latest book, Puta Life, Seeing Latinas Working Sex. Um, Tell me about this book. Yes, I followed Juana's work for a number of years. You know, her writing about kind of Latinx sexualities informed a key part of my dissertation and kind of thinking about how sexuality, race, gender, and all of those kind of overlapping identities and experiences kind of function and how they mutually inform one another. And this is a project that I know she's been working on for a long time, but it takes a different turn in her work. So we talk obviously about it's centered on the stories of sex workers and kind of how, again, similar to her previous work, how sex, race, and in this case, kind of capitalism, identity, immigration, all kind of function together. So it's really interesting. And what I definitely appreciated that we get into a bit in this conversation, which is pretty wide ranging, is the kind of ethics of writing about sex workers. So this kind of gap between the person who's doing the writing and doing the analysis and the person who is the subject of that analysis. And obviously, Juan also has a number of close relationships with the people that she's writing about. And so it doesn't feel completely distant, but there's lots of interesting kind of writing about what you know we're doing when we're talking about sex workers, especially within the academy. Yeah, it's important, I guess, to make that distinction. Yeah, exactly. And to really think about it, it's kind of a an open-ended question and more of like a kind of practice that I know Juana is invested in, but also in kind of thinking more broadly, both in academia, but this also applies to journalists and others. Of course, yeah. How do we write about people whose lives and circumstances are so different from our own? Exactly. And what's that kind of border between advocacy, you know, like wanting to make change with the kind of writing or thought that you put out in the world. And then like also the feeling that like you can never really provide what I will say a truth claim about that experience because you have to recognize what that gap kind of means or the aporia that's there. Sounds illuminating. Maybe we should get to the interview. All right, let's do it. I'm excited to have Juana Maria Rodriguez join me on the line today. Juana is Professor of Ethnic Studies, Performance Studies, and Gender and Women's Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. 
She is the author of Sexual Futures, Queer Gestures, and Other Latina Longings, as well as Queer Latinidad, Identity Practices, Discursive Spaces. She joins us today to discuss her latest book, Puta Life, Seeing Latinas Working Sex. On one level, Puta Life explores the sticky circulation of the word puta in Latinx femme identity and culture, where it signifies a range of subject positions, emotions, and affects from its literal meaning as quote-unquote whore or prostitute to its elusive and demonstrative uses signifying something being more grand, moving, cool, or even identifying a woman as variously rebellious, powerful, seductive, degraded, exalted, and much more. On another level, Puta Life explores how those meanings come to us through the visual and narrative archives that frame the Puta as a racialized class subject variously constituted in relation to state surveillance and patriarchal control. Moving between stories of and from the archives as varied as the history of photography, contemporary documentary films, pornography, and more, Juana's attempt to account for how the image and identity of the puta is constructed for us through the lenses of race, gender, age, sexuality, labor, disability, migration, and criminalization. Drawing on her personal experience and complex identification with this archive and the figures that circulate within it, Juana's Puta Life asks us to wrestle with the past, present, and future of sex work, its actors, and its cultural representation. Thanks so much for joining me, Juana. It's fantastic to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. So let's start. I did this a little bit in the intro, but can you just gloss for our listeners the figure of the puta, right? Especially this, the doubleness, which I find so productive about it, you know, and one dyad would be to say that the puta is at once a woman who is scorned and shunned by society, yet also revered as possessing prodigious sexual powers and specifically power to dominate men. Yes, absolutely. It's a sort of double valence of being desired and vilified. But that double valence also serves to really erase the kind of complexity and humanity of this figure, right? And so one of the things that's curious is she's everywhere. Every time I talk to someone about this project, they're quick to say, oh, have you heard of this person who is a local figure in their town or their city? Or have you heard of this uh, famous brothel in this town? And so the figure of La Puta really is everywhere. She's on soap operas. She's in a zillion television series. And I was really curious about this fascination and what that might teach us about sex work right now. Today, gay and lesbian people can get married in California anyway. Medical marijuana or cannabis is legal. And yet we can't engage in consensual adult exchanges of sex for money. So part of my interest in this project was really trying to get queers, but also everyone, to really think about that, to think about the ongoing criminalization of sex work. And why is it that the puta, the sex worker, the prostitute, like, occupies this highly charged space of such double valence? Like, is this because 
as someone who does what, quote unquote, women, respectable women, the kind of white middle class female ideal is supposed to do with her body because she does not do that. She is at once like this kind of, and I'm using also tendentious terms, right? A siren call to another mode of being that could be beyond the limitations that all of us, men, women, and in between, feel with those identities. And yet also she is the mark of how society punishes or harms or views women that step out of that place and show us some alterity or different place to be. Absolutely. I think the figure of the sex worker as a tragic figure. So no matter how much money she accumulates, how much fame or power she might have, it always has to be a story that ends in tragedy because that has to be the message that is cast out, that this is a tragic figure. One of the things that I thought was curious in my research was historically sumptuary laws, laws that determined how you could dress were laws used against sex workers because they didn't want someone walking around in silks and satins that didn't have a respectable husband paying for them, right? So as an advertisement for another kind of life. And I really think of it as a kind of queer life, a life that exists outside of the confines of monogamy and marriage, even as many sex workers are, of course, married, right? And might have other kinds of relationships with their primary partners. It's a job, yeah. Yeah, you know, I wanted to start kind of where the book starts also in the past. And this is specifically around the rise of the photograph as a new technology. But also in Mexico City, the rise of the publication of El Registro de Mujeres Públicas, which is, as it sounds, a registry of sex workers. I mean, this is so fascinating just as like a history. So it's a registry of sex workers. This is in the, the 19th century that records their names and images as part of a state surveillance project that it once oversees, literally oversees, licenses, and then also extracts fees from them. But then you also get into the rise of early, I guess we would say erotica, not quite pornography, I think, and its transmutation into high art through the photographs of Félix-Jacques-Antoine Moulin and Ernest J. Belloc from the 19th century. So can you talk about how these two very different aesthetic regimes, let's call them, produce the puta not only in their own time, but shape the reception of that figure in ours? In the book, I offer two sort of historical chapters. And the first historical chapter is what you reference, this sort of deep dive into the singular book called Registro de Mujeres Públicas, which was 1865, Mexico City. And it was a registry of sex workers where they had to go get their photograph taken and they would produce this very short biography of their name and how old they were and maybe what other kind of work they did. And so this was the beginning of a kind of criminalization of sex work, right? Before sex workers, you know, they went, they collected the money, they kept stepping. Now they had to register, they had to have medical exams, right? So I talk about it in terms of biopolitics. But what's curious is the archive that's produced in that moment is really 
There are not any established ideas about what portraiture is. The criminal photograph, the mugshot hasn't really been established. That will come a few years later. So some of these portraits look like really just portraits. You wouldn't necessarily know that they were sex workers. So In this archive, I was looking for these sort of, how do you read class? How do you read the kinds of racial complexity in Mexico? I found so many immigrant women in the archives, women from Germany, France, that had traveled to Cuba, to Mexico. There was this kind of circulation of sex workers which I found really quite fascinating. Women would board boats to migrate and would list prostitute as their profession, right? So yes, it was stigmatized, but also kind of accepted as the kind of work that one could do. So that's a sort of deep dive into really thinking about what criminalization does, how the kind of control that it instills and the role of the state, right? Because in that moment, it's not really about criminalizing it. It's about controlling it, regulating it in order to maximize the profits that others can extract from this kind of work. And then the other chapter is a much more sort of kind of wild and capacious chapter that starts with these daguerreotypes, really thinking about the colonial archive and thinking about this move from painting to photography. And one of the stories that I uncovered, Moline, this uh, photographer, so he was photographed naked women and would sell them to painters, right, as artist studies. But he was arrested and these photographs were were deemed obscene. And he was uh, fined, he got a fine of 100 francs. But the person that was fined the most was the collector. He received a much harsher sentence. At the time, it actually cost more to own a naked photograph than it was to pay for, you know, an hour with a sex worker. It was actually looking at the photograph that was imagined to be the deviant act, right, was lingering over that image. When I was thinking about these images, I mean, there's so much that because we don't have infinite amount of time, we can't talk about all of it, but I do want to foreground for listeners that one of the really fascinating and I think enduring takeaways of this study and the history that Juana is excavating is the ways in which racialization of the specifically Latinx sex worker with kind of, you know, the figure of the African, the kind of with blackness in general is all part of this, right? And that's also part, especially in the French scene with the the colonial gaze, constructs these women in very particular, often exotic kind of ways. But that made me think about the organization and contextualization of these images under scopic male fantasy, right? So one of the things that I kept wondering, I mean, and in a sense, this is what your book is, is looking at the puta from a feminist or female gaze or framework. So how does that kind of 
encounter the sorts of, let's say, masculinist or patriarchal kind of frames of the historical material that you're working with? Like, I'm sure there's some frisson or like, you know, gritty resistance that you feel when you're looking at things in a way that are not how they were originally framed. One of the things that I think is um, you find queerness where you look for it. And so in terms of my own sort of femme sensibilities, I think, you know, one of the chapters is about, well, it's not a retirement home. It is a home for elderly sex workers, some of whom are retired, some of whom are not. And so at this home, one of the women there, her name is Nodma, and she sort of tells this story of she was herself a sex worker. She also pimped her girlfriend. (laughs) And again, I think these are not necessarily the kinds of feminist stories that we might imagine, right? We don't necessarily think of women pimping their female partners or women, which is really women working together to make sex work as safe and perhaps as profitable as possible so that they can survive, right? But to me, the kind of feminist and really femme sensibilities were about looking differently trying to see other moments of intimacy that become invisible to clients, right? The client only sees the image that they have paid for, but they have not bought this person. They have not bought this person's life, right? They have bought access to their time. And so I was really interested in all of the unseen, right? The unseen aspects of people's lives and how they choose to reveal or not reveal how they're sort of seeing themselves. And one of the things in this text, many of the women that I look at are, let's say, past their prime, right? Very often we think of sex workers and there's this kind of fascination with, you know, the young, beautiful OnlyFans star. And yet the reality is many women continue working as sex workers well into their lives. And at Casa Xochiquetzal, this house that I looked at, some of these women had had the same client 50 years, right? These are long-term intimate relationships. And so I really wanted to think about the kind of care work that sex work can be, the kind of care work that women might do with and for one another, Sex workers very often work in collectives, whether they're sharing a street corner or whether they're teaching each other. I was just at the San Francisco Sex Worker Film and Arts Conference, and there were all of these skill exchange workshops. Sex workers are very much involved in crafting their own visual image. And so they're very much about keeping each other safe, creating community, being activists together on all kinds of levels. So mutual aid is very much a part of sex worker economies. Let me jump forward, actually, to talk about Casa Xochiquetzal, because I did find that is a fascinating story. And it also gets us into these 
larger complications about how we understand and receive these stories that I do want to bracket just a little bit for later. But one of the things that I was interested in, so Casa Xochiquetzal is, as far as I understand, right, it's in part funded by the state as a home for kind of older sex workers. But one of the things that you do, how you look at this object is as it's refracted in at least three, I think, different documentary projects that have centered on, and using again a tendentious term, capturing on camera the women who live there. And so you're looking at once at kind of the ways in which puta life, to use the term of the book, kind of wears on the body or how the body wears or bears those traces of a life and a world that no longer wants it since it is aged, as you were saying, past its prime. It invites these, this kind of a window into your personal connection. I really love, for example, this observation you have when you're looking at a photograph of a woman who's identified as Amalia and she's putting on makeup and you say, as my gaze scrutinizes every inch of the image, I wonder if as viewers, we are supposed to be charmed, bemused or horrified at these attempts at femme vanity. The truth is, I am ashamed of how sad this photograph makes me feel, how far away from this image of puta life I want to situate my own attachments to performances of feminine beauty imagined to be past their prime. This is femme aging, and it is terrifying. Can you talk a little bit about just that sensorium that you're kind of opening up, which happens a number of times throughout the text? Yeah, I think I... One of the things that... I did in the book is try to take the reader with me and try to look together at images and think about what that looking does and how we look and what that triggers. And this house, Casa Xochiquetzal, there are, in the chapter, there are two books of photography, but there have been innumerable sort of journalistic, photojournalistic essays on it. And like I say, at least three documentaries. Because I think this juxtaposition of these older women as sex workers, right? It's so sort of shocking that we we can't just read about the story, we have to see it. So there's something about the insistence on the visual that I think is interesting. And yes. in that chapter, part of what I'm trying to do is like, what are these different ways of telling stories? Like, what are they supposed to make us feel? Aging is horrifying. And I think, you know, as women, so much of our beauty, our sexuality is imagined, is tied into our looks. And this idea of your worth being tied to your ability to pull, to seduce, to attract. And so for sex workers, that becomes, you know, how much can you charge in some ways? How good is your business, right? What are your talents? But I think there was this other, for me, looking at these photographs of these kind of older naked women, I realized that the only older naked women I had ever seen in my life were like my grandmother, my like Thea's. And there was very something kind of intimate there. And I just imagined my own body aging, seeing older, naked bodies, right? We're constantly presented with 
images of nudity that are so beautiful and perfect and not scarred and not bulging and not wrinkled. And so I think it's, there was something almost meditative about sitting with, oh, this is what happens to bodies. This is what happens when collagen wears out. This is also how we can see the markers of poverty on someone's skin, on their feet, on their hands. One of the images there, as you know, you look at these things and you you start looking for things over and over again. And and there were different ways in which there were kind of signs of protection, whether it was a symbol or a charm or ways in which they tried to form connections with the divine to seek forms of sort of spiritual protection that really touched me in this kind of deep way. It's curious to be closer to the end of your life than at the beginning, right? So you're staring off into this horizon. And reckoning with aging is its own queer thing that we really don't talk a lot about in sexuality studies. And yet it brings out all those feelings. It brings out all of those feelings of vulnerability and tenderness and and shame, like the fact that we would be ashamed of being old. Well, that's crazy, right? Like the idea is that we would all get there, but somehow being older is imagined as shameful. I mean, that is so much deeper and culturally ingrained than just like a discussion about sex. Like that's our inability to, to face the possibility of our, our no longer existence. listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Juana Maria Rodriguez, author of Puta Life, Seeing Latinas, Working Sex. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We have Claire Dieter on the line with us today. Her new book is called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, and Claire is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Claire, what book are you going to recommend? So the book I am going to recommend has nothing to do with my book at all. And it's just a book that I am amazed more people haven't read. It's Alison Bechtel's collection, Essential Dykes to Watch Out For. So people really know, I mean, the first reason people know Bechtel is because of the Bechtel test, which is a fluke that that's what she's become famous for. And then there's Fun Home, the play that was made of Fun Home, and and people tend to know her later memoiristic work, which all of the trilogy of memoirs are incredible. You know, Fun Home, Are You My Mother, and uh, The Secret to Superhuman Strengths, also incredible books. Just to say, Alison Bechtel is a cartoonist and a graphic memoirist. But The Essential Dykes to Watch Out For is a collection of her weekly strips that ran from 1983 to 2008. And they follow this group of friends who are lesbians living in this small town, small college city, not a small town. And they're living through the history of the 80s, the 90s, and the aughts. 
And there's a lot of like tangled love affairs and old friendships and stories about people moving from being radical to being bourgeois. So it's just very fun to read, very soapy and super witty. But it's also this kind of shadow document of this era. And as a journalist and as somebody who's really interested in cultural history, I'm 56, so I'm approximately her age. And there's so many aspects of counterculture, of radical thought, of mainstream democratic politics that we lived through in the Bush era and beyond that she has captured in the moment here in real time. So for me to revisit the thinking of this time is incredible. And I think for younger readers, there's a lot of history here. And Bechtel always gets it just right. Even his, we were just talking about history and she's always on the right side of history. She has this way of illuminating historical moments that's incredible. So good. I'm so glad that you recommended that. I've never, I've never heard of it. Will you tell us the title again and the author? It's called The Essential Dykes to Watch Out For by Alison Bechtel. So it's a big fat compendium. Thank you so much, Claire. Thank you. We've been talking to Claire Dieter. Her new book is called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Juana Maria Rodriguez, author of Puta Life. So we are, in some ways, both of us, as I read, you know, as you view, interpret, and analyze, we're projecting things. And one of the interesting aporias, and I want to rewind to the chapter on Vanessa Del Rio, because I think that kind of gets at this. There's there's an aporia where there's like, okay, but what does she, the subject, actually feel, think, believe, you know, because part of the the sex work thing, right, is it is also about performance. It's about posturing. It's about gesture. It's about romance. It's about narrative, you know, so there's lots of different levels of mediation between like, let's say the raw subject's experience and the external vision of whatever that experience is. So just to rewind and concretize for our listeners, in that chapter on Vanessa Del Rio, who for listeners is one of the most famous Latinx porn stars of kind of the 1970s and 1980s, particularly in that East Coast, you know, New York area, but also more generally across the U.S. and even in the kind of Caribbean diaspora. Vanessa's story is an example, I think, of what happens when we allow the puta to tell her own story in her own frame rather than framing it for her, right? That's what we've been talking about. But it also gets us into this kind of quagmire of interpretation and projection. So at times, it's like I found it hard to read Vanessa's stories, which are Yes, they're about enjoyable sex, they're about orgasms, but they're also about stories of abuse, of being raped by a police officer, of her very complex relationship with her lover, Reb Stout. And it's hard for me to read those and not see her desire expressed in her own voice for humiliation and submission as not being part of a more damaging vision of 
Puta life, even as she's claiming it as power and agency, right? So in particular, I'm just going to read this brief piece that you wrote, because I think it gets to the heart of what I'm trying to articulate, which is, you observe, the interpretive possibilities include Vanessa's ability to access her own sexual pleasure and script it as an act of subversion, even in the midst of a coercive encounter. Rio's account of herself exposes the way the experiences of racialized female subjects that are not white, middle class, or quote-unquote respectable are made illegible within feminist frameworks that fail to account for the possibility of pleasure in the sexual lives of those who are constituted by violence. As a critic, I might be able to argue with her analysis of these events, but in order to do justice to Vanessa Del Rio's version of her puta life, I also have to find a way to make sense of the trace of the real, of her laughter, of the materiality of her orgasm, and of her desire to control the terms under which her intelligibility functions. Even in the face of police violence that aims to subjugate and dehumanize her, Vanessa Del Rio rebuffs efforts to reduce her experience to the narrative tropes of normative heterofemininity or the redemptive victimhood she refuses to vanish and instead shamelessly relishes the dirty sensory and performative excesses associated with her puta life. So there we have like so many different ways of seeing what is being articulated. And yet we can't really say that any of those is actually quote unquote the truth, whatever that is. How did you navigate these things in the archive? I mean... In some ways, it's a project about sex work, and in some ways, it's a project about the impossibility of representation. In, like, the fact that I often tell my students, not only can we not ever fully represent someone else, we're also completely incapable of fully representing ourselves. I mean, there's always both a kind of absence, right? I think I I made myself clear, and yet our listeners might not really get everything that I intended to express. And in excess, they might also be reading more into it than I actually thought. Sometimes people interpret my work in ways that, oh, that's interesting. It's not what I meant, but I like where you're going with that, right? So this idea of an absence and an excess of representation. And I think that when we write, we're constantly sort of in that space of knowing and not knowing. And I think as critics, it's about I think most of us have abandoned claims to mastery. There isn't really a truth claim. There is a claim in this moment for this audience that produces or hopes to produce meaning. And yet as that meaning travels and encounters other meaning makers, other people, it's going to change. And so one of the things that I was trying to do in that chapter is actually wrestle with what it means to not be able to produce declarative, interpretive positions. I do think that her desire for submission is hard to understand. My own desire for submission is hard to understand. Part of What I tried to sort of reach for in that chapter was all the ways in which we can try 
to make ourselves legible to others. But there's always a, a gap. There's always a, a space that, a gap that we're never fully able to close. Yeah, you know, I mean, part of what I think haunts Puta life, and I, I really appreciated in the epilogue how you grapple with this, is this, you know, and we can call it what it is. It's an anxiety about the gulf between you as scholar, between us as viewers and readers, and the subjects whose stories you're telling and we are consuming. And I love that moment near the end of the book when you're writing about your friend. So the other part of this is that you have off-the-page connections to these communities that some of the, you know, not all of them, obviously not the historical ones. There's, it's complicated. You're talking with your friend and writing about your friend, the trans sex worker, Adela Vasquez, whose story of transition, transmigration, transformation, all of that encapsulates so many of the slippages and movements that you're chronicling and accounting for Puta life. But when she reads your manuscript, right, which is terrifying for any, any author, right? Adela says, me ha encantado tu interpretación de quien soy yo. You know, I love your interpretation of who I am, right? Or your reading of me. And it's this moment of kind of friendly ribbing, but it's also one that I think you're reckoning with throughout Puta life, right? Namely, that you're assuming a kind of authority over these stories, the right to tell them, but also to interpret them, right? To even as, as we're saying, there is no meaning, there's no truth claim, like, you're doing work on them. And then I love this observation in your epilogue that says, I have tried to be gentle, to leave air for distrust and doubt, knowing that many times I am exhuming another's vulnerability and heartache across an insurmountable chasm of space and time and flesh. Yet to say the differences that divide us are too deep, too difficult, is to refuse the work of affirming life, not as a singular enterprise of survival, but as a collective dream about what Denise Ferreira da Silva calls entangled worlds. I so deeply appreciate the ethical candor of your scholarly position. I wish that more of us would actually do that, to be perfectly honest with you. And so I guess what I'm getting here is I'd love to hear you talk more about negotiating that. I mean, anybody who has worked in an archive with not living people or people we don't know, even especially people who work on living subjects we don't know, has faced, if they're a good person, I should say, not that we're getting into a moral argument, but has faced this question, this ethical entanglement. And so can you talk to us a little bit about how you negotiate and how maybe the rest of us as critics, scholars, and viewers might better negotiate that fraught terrain between our desires, our projections, and desiring identifications with others from either the archives or our lives and the real flesh people who animate those kind of affects, epistemologies, and sensoriums for us? I think that's the question, and I think that's really the one of the central questions that the academy continues to wrestle with. I'm a humanist, right? And so I think for me, part of the ethics of this, so the ethics are complicated because there's the ethics of representation, and that is, I think I... In my writing, I try to leave space. I try to create room for air, even, for other interpretive possibilities. I try to write in ways that invite the reader to 
think with me because perhaps they will see something different. But I think the other ethical part is, you know, I was writing about sex workers and I felt as someone that has built a career off of writing about sex as a queer studies scholar, I profit. I'm sending my kid to college because I write publicly about sex. And so part of the ethics then is, well, what am I doing? Like as a political act for me to speak up and out for sex workers was really my number one motive for this book. I wanted people that are interested in prison abolition to care about sex workers. I want feminists and queers to care about sex workers. Gay marriage, but sex work, right? I think it's really this question of sexual regulation is at the heart of the ongoing criminalization and stigma that surrounds sex work. And as queers, we really need to step up to that because it's murderous out there. You know, when we say that we care about the murder of trans women, so many of those women were murdered because they were engaged in sex work, right? Not all of them, of course not. But we need to care about people who really are bearing the brunt in very real ways of the way morality has seeped into our laws. The criminalization of sex work, particularly right now in terms of the kind of violence that we're seeing towards transgender communities, the criminalization of sex work almost functions the way as like, you know, stop and frisk. So who gets stopped because they think you might be engaged in sex work, right? So what does soliciting look like? And how is that different from flirting? How is that different from advertising, right? That's also trying to lure you in and seduce you. So these kinds of things. So I really thought that as the queer community, I think we owe it to sex workers and we are sex workers. So many queers are, we're consumers of sexual labor. We participate in sexual labor as clients, as service providers, as OnlyFans consumers. We eat up porn, right? We're totally enmeshed in all of the economies that surround sexual labor. And I know that as I get older, I want to continue to be a a sexually engaged Engaged person. And maybe that will mean purchasing someone's sexual labor. I see a therapist. I see a masseuse. I want sex work to be available, to be something that I can negotiate just the way I negotiate for a massage or with my ongoing terms that I have established with my therapist as a kind of care, right? So sex work is, can be a kind of care work. I think that maybe there's the slippage in that care aspect of it is because there's one way of reading that I'm projecting. There's one way of reading what you've said is like a kind of which I'm sure is not what you intend 
And I think that's where care comes in, which is that that could be seen as the neoliberalization of these kind of relationships. Like, oh, I want to consume this thing and I want to feel good about it. So then the project should be, I just want to feel good about consuming this. I don't think that's where you're coming from, that it is about care and relation. And this is where the figure of the Buddha becomes complicated because she is enmeshed in the loops of capital that we are trained and experience in our everyday flesh and blood lives as extractive, as sometimes violent, as a system of power in which it is the purse, not the person that matters. So can you articulate just a little bit the kind of the way that you see labor encountering care? I'll start by saying that so many of the kind of complexities, again, capitalism and care, right? We can perhaps extend those complexities to other kinds of care work that we also pay for. Mm -hmm. Does my therapist really want to listen to me complain about my mother for 30 minutes? You know, I don't know. So we can sort of extend that. The other thing that I think my mantra is criminalization makes everything bad about sex work worse. So we can think about, in terms of like how we negotiate care, one of the things that I think is really interesting is the way we see the kind of negotiation that sex workers engage in all the time of setting limits, of setting boundaries, what, you know, hard limits and soft, right, of negotiating what will this sexual encounter be? What do you want out of it, right? And really having these very direct and open conversations that I think all kinds of sexual communities have really benefited. I think we've all learned from both sex worker communities and BDSM communities about how to have really open conversations about what feels good, what doesn't feel good, what might feel good, what we want to try, right? What we absolutely don't want to try. So when I'm talking about care and the kind of care that can exist when two people come together to say, okay, this is what I would like from this sexual exchange, and this is what I can offer you, right, as a price— we buy all kinds of of services. Again, I think something like therapy, we really want our therapists to care about us. I think my therapist really does care about us, me. And sometimes sex workers really do care about their clients. There can be both, I'm doing my job and I want to do a good job because I want you to feel cared for. I want you to feel like you got the service that you came for. And to be able to do that on my terms, to set my limits, right? And so I think that's what we want for sex workers. We want sex workers to be able to control their own labor, to set their own limits, and to not be criminalized or stigmatized for doing so. I think, you know, I'm um, I'm a professor, so I have to understand, you know, when I talk about sex work to other professors, so many of our students are putting themselves through college as escorts and they have only fans and they have, you know, arrangements, right? 
I don't want any of those uh, young people stigmatized with that five years from now. We've already seen accounts. There was one Mr. Snow, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. Her advisor refused, like pretty much refused to write for her because she had a moral problem with this student, the way she had supported herself with her work. Which is also foisting the professor's shame onto the student. Right? It's just horrible. So I think really that's the other ethical part of this, right? It's about protecting the most vulnerable members of a criminalized profession, a stigmatized profession, that even if what they're doing isn't illegal, because it's not always, right, stripping isn't necessarily illegal, still can come back to haunt you, right? Can still bring down a professional career. You know, I think that's really important. We really need to contend with that as a society. And again, I think criminalization is stigma made law. And so dealing with the criminalization is the first step in really dealing with the social stigma that surrounds sexual labor. Yeah, you know, just a last couple of questions. I want to get to one thing which is going to feel a little bit out of step. But I wonder how the kind of narrative of puta life might change if we're talking about the male sex worker, so the puto or the pato. Well, pato doesn't necessarily imply sex work, right? So how would the dynamics of representation, I know that that's probably its own book, right? Like, how does that change? Is gender really the thing that we can hang on to as part of what directs and distorts this archive? I think I'm going to use Laura Agustin's line, and she's, it's because women provoke the scandal. I think we can think back to the very beginning of Sesta Fosta when they shut down Backpage. Backpage was where a lot of gay men were advertising as escorts. Mm. And when they shut down Backpage, it was like the gay community was like, well, what do you mean sex work is illegal? It, It was never illegal before. We've been doing this for years, right? And again, it was like, these are young men. They're putting themselves through college, right? They were hunky young men that were putting those muscles to good use and earning a living for themselves, right? So it was almost shocking how shocked the gay community was when it was like, oh, wait a minute, this affects us? Yes, in fact, it does affect us, right? It does affect the queer community. So I think that moment really says so much about how we see male sex workers, right? The male sex worker is an entrepreneur, right? He is a hustler, right? Even the language of a male hustler, right? So it's this idea that he's extracting something and his poor victim, right? So again, in these economies, the male sex worker is never imagined as a victim. If anything, it's his older client. Oh, yes. Yeah, like rough trade tales and stuff like that. Yeah. 
Exactly. So I think gender really does change how we tell the story. But what we know is that people of all genders are harmed by the violence and criminalization of sex work. One of the most shocking and perhaps unsurprising statistics was that violence by the police is the largest predictor of violence by clients. So when sex workers have already been assaulted, extorted, blackmailed, harassed by police, they're more likely to suffer that same kind of violence from clients because they know that they can't turn to the state to protect them, right? And so I think so much of this is really the criminalization of sex work gives the police license to harass and to surveil aberrant forms of sexuality. When you see those posters that say, you know, sex trafficking, if you see something, say something, very often the number to call is the Department of Homeland Security. And so here's the thing. If you say that you've been trafficked, you can petition for a special kind of visa, which is is good. We want this visa for people, for victims of crimes. There's a U visa that you can apply for that allows you to stay. But if you just say, oh, no, I'm just working sex, then... You're a criminal and you're deported. Yeah. So in other words, the narrative becomes a way is people are sort of incentivized to use the narrative of victimization. Mm. And then the last thing that I wanted to ask you about, hopefully ending on a somewhat of a positive note, though it's all positive if we cause change, is that in that last chapter about Adela Vasquez, you're talking at one point about how she's made a, a kind of archive of her own through Facebook, right? That seems to be kind of unique in this collection of materials in that it's both directly, and I guess we could say relatively unmediated self-narration from the subject about her life, right? So she didn't have to go to a publisher. I mean, there's Facebook and it has its own things. But I wonder if you see in the present moment the kind of democratization of technology that might be opening up a window in which we can get kind of directly more nuanced and authentic portraits of Puta life that don't involve quite the kind of ethical quagmires or or the need to really like make sure that we're being, you know, good actors. You know, is that opening up a new avenue for telling these stories and, and hearing about these lives? Yes, absolutely. And always in these very complicated ways, because we also know in San Francisco that, you know, Facebook is part of the engine of gentrification that is ruining the city that I love so much and making it just so unlivable, so very expensive for working people like Adela. So absolutely. And like I say, I was just at the San Francisco Sex Worker Film and Art Archive Film Festival, and there was so much just amazing film and art and so many ways for sex workers to distribute that. 
But again, criminalization comes in. It's so, you know, on Instagram, so many, not just individual sex workers, but sex worker organizations trying to promote their organizations have gotten shadow banned on these platforms. So again, we really need to collectively get rid of SESTA-FOSTA. It's really the kind of criminalization around sex work affects sex workers, but it also affects artists. And I think all of us that want to be free, want to be naked, want to be sexually alive and expressive, really need to think about the regulation of sex and all the ways that it affects us. My favorite story from the book, though, is at the end of the chapter on uh, Registro de Mujeres Públicas, where I found this lovely little lesbian love poem from 1888, where this uh, lesbian sex worker talks about that if the mayor messes with her girl, she's just going to slice his throat. And so I love the fact that even in this early moment, in 1888, there was a political party of sex workers called Las Horizontales, the horizontal ones. And they were already activating. They were already organizing movements. And so the fact that sex workers have been organizing since 1888 is, I think, is really the message that I'd love to leave the audience with. That, uh, yeah, getting together, making changes, making more Buddha life possible. All right, that's a perfect place to end. Thank you so much. We have been speaking with Juana Maria Rodriguez, author most recently of Puta Life, Seeing Latinas Working Sex. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the LARP Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us an Apple podcast to help us get the word out. And we'd love to hear from you. The producers at the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Matea Baim. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotten.